Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahal Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance Please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting the show, there is a link in the show notes. Thank you. And we really do appreciate your support. On this episode of the show, we're very pleased to be joined by Jerry Shannon. Jerry is a historian from Skerries in North County, Dublin, and he completed his thesis on Liam Lynch during the Civil War as part of his MA in History with the Dublin City University School of History and Geography. He's a civil servant, and he's on today to talk about his recent biography of Liam Lynch. You're very welcome to the show, Jerry. Thank you very much, Carl. Glad to be here. Now, what first attracted you to Liam Lynch, and why did you think a new biography was necessary? I think what first drew me to Liam Lynch was, well, he's a major figure of stature in the period, one of the main kind of IRA commandants during the War of Independence, certainly one of the most celebrated, and he was the leader of the IRA during the Civil War. And I was always very drawn to Lynch because he's someone who's often talked about people, you know, contemporaries of his and many historians have an opinion of him, but he's only been the focus of two biographies, one written by Florence O'Donoghue in 1954 entitled No Other Law. Now, Florence was a close contemporary of Lynch's he was a historian himself as you know you and john would know he was involved in the bureau of military history and so on so he was someone who would be considered a good historian at the time you know to write a biography of such a figure like lynch and then the last biography the only the second major one ever done on lynch was Mita ryan's biography the real chief liam lynch the strength of Mita ryan's book is that she was able to interview contemporaries of lynch kind of add her own research to help her own wider understanding of lynch but you know the problem with these two books and while they both have great value particularly Florence O'Donoghue's book and Flurry's research in the National Library you can also see they're very much celebratory of Liam Lynch you know the great martyred Republican hero and they don't really kind of tease out kind of nuances in Lynch's character kind of look at his flaws as well as his positives and since 1986 since Mina Ryan's book came out there's been a whole wide array of new archival material that's become available for one thing there's the personal papers of some of Lynch's contemporaries such as Moss Toomey and Ernie O'Malley, and of course there's the Ernie O'Malley interviews as well. And we also have the Bureau of Military History and the Military Pensions that help widen our perspective on the Irish Revolution. And it also helps us to widen our perspective on some of the leading figures, such as Liam Lynch. So in that respect, it was just there was just an irresistible opportunity to write a new biography of Liam Lynch and certainly helped me to understand a figure I've always been greatly fascinated by. 
Who was Liam Lynch and where did he come from? What was his background? Well, Liam Lynch was born in rural Limerick. He was born in a townland outside the village of Anglesborough, which was near the Limerick-Cork border, or rather the border of Limerick and North Cork. He was born into a rural family. His mother and father were steeped into very important radical traditions in late 19th century Ireland. His father, Jeremiah, was a Fenian. He had taken part, or at least he tried to take part in the 1867 uprising. And Lynch's mother, Mary, she was born Mary Kelly. She had been a member of the Ballyanders Ladies Land League. So already you have these political influences in Lynch's background. He was the second youngest of seven siblings, and he was particularly close to two of his brothers, Martin and Tom, especially Tom, who was the youngest Lynch sibling. They were both priests. And we were very lucky that we have a lot of Liam Lynch's letters from 1917 up to 1922, over 30 letters that he wrote to Tom, which help us to give an understanding of who he is and, you know, his political thinking at this time. But he attended school in the locality of Anglesborough. His school teacher, Patrick Kylie, talks about him as a quiet, studious boy, shy. And Lynch's godmother, Hannah Cleary, who was born Hannah Condon, she's very much a forgotten figure in Lynch's story. She was a great influence on him in terms of shaping his politics. She talks about lending him a lot of books on Irish history. And you see this recur again about Lynch's earlier years. He was very much a very studious individual. Like he read a lot of books, particularly about Irish revolutionary history. He would have loved John Mitchell's jail journal, speeches from the dock that we would know as kind of typical nationalist texts that, you know, a lot of Lynch's peers would have read in late 19th century Ireland. Now Lynch would have helped on his father's farm outside Anglesborough, but he would never stood to inherit the farm and like his, you know, his oldest brother, Sean or John, as he's sometimes called. Lynch began his professional career as a shop assistant, or rather an apprentice, in nearby Mitchestown, and later in Formoy, which is where he was in 1916. Mitchestown is where he first becomes involved in nationalist politics, uh, particularly by way of the Gaelic League, which was becoming increasingly politicised by then. Now, ironically, Lynch, by his own admission, didn't have a great grasp of the Irish language himself. There's actually a reference to him joining the Ancient Order of Hibernians, though he later said to his brother Tom he thought they were a lot of gas bags. He doesn't seem to have stayed with them particularly long. Now, it's in these circles he would have met a lot of his contemporaries, you know, whether in the Gaelic League or working as a shop assistant in Mitchell and for more, he would have met a lot of his contemporaries that later would have become active in the volunteers with him. He also would have met a woman who became very important in his life, Briley Keyes, who was from Kilshani outside Mitchellstown. And she worked as a draper's assistant in Mitchellstown, and he becomes acquainted with her through the Gaelic League. There's a couple of things I'd like to tease out there, though, Jerry. I mean, one thing is, I think... Isn't it fair to say that Liam Lynch is quite typical of the cohort of people who are going to, on to be our officers and the volunteers of the IRA in that, like, it's the up and coming kind of Catholic lower middle class he's from. You know, he's not from the very poor. He's not from the very rich. And, you know, he's steeped in, yes, radicalism, Fenians, but also like he was a Hibernian. Now, one thing I want to talk about a little bit is, you know, the Hibernians are famously a Catholic only society. And there is a, a bit of kind of anti-Protestant vibe you can get off Liam Lynch in your book I think Jerry like there's one time when he's in a cemetery I think with his brother Tom who's a priest and he said uh yeah, these are the these are alien people you know they're none of us what was there a sectarian tinge to him I think if there was a sectarian tinge I, I would agree with you there but it was very typical of the kind of thinking in wider Irish Catholic society at the time and yes I would agree with you he was from that kind of lower middle class background very typical of many of his peers I mean his job as a shop assistant in Mitchell Centre for Moy would have been seen as quite I don't want to say affluent is the wrong word but would have been quite typical of uh, you know, it would have been kind of well regarded as well by, by his peers and certainly by his family and he, it would have brought him into contact with a wider world which is very important for his political and, and social development but just on the mention of sectarianism there there's an anecdote that his brother tom wrote 
about a trip that the two of them made to a graveyard outside Mitchellstown, where they went to see where some of their ancestors were buried. Like Tom and Liam shared a great interest in history and they shared a great interest in their own family history. Their grandfather actually, or their great-grandfather, James Lynch, was actually shot during the famine. He was a small landowner outside Anglesborough. He lived on the farm where they grew up. So they would have been aware of kind of that kind of agrarian violence in their own background. But they had a great interest in their family history. So they go out to visit this graveyard and there was actually a monument in the graveyard like commemorating the recent heroes of the Great War. This is in 1920, of course. And Lynch makes the comment to Tom, you know, he would like to be buried here, but he doesn't want to be buried with those of an alien creed, obviously referring to those of uh, Protestant, uh, perhaps loyalist background as, as some of those who fought in the Great War would have been. So I think it's more a casual sectarianism that would have been very typical of many Catholics at the time. Probably certainly maybe drew him to the ancient order of Iberians a bit, but there's been some suggestion that he didn't stay with them very long. I think what's more interesting in terms of his development at this earlier stage is that he was an avowed Redmanite. That's backed up by several accounts from his peers. I mean, he joins the Mitchelstown Volunteers in mid-1914, and then he goes with the Redmondite National Volunteers locally. Like the National Library of Ireland, and I have it in the book as well, you can see his digitized uh, membership card from 1915, where it has Irish National Volunteers on it, you know, which dates from the time he would have been a member of the National Volunteers. Now, his brother Tom insists in one account that Liam was very kind of taken aback by Redmond's call for the National Volunteers to sign up to the British Army. No evidence or suggestion he'd any interest in that himself. But he's an avowed Redmondite. His godmother, Hannah Cleary, who would have stayed with the McNeil minority faction, the Volunteers locally, she talks about an argument that they had in Fermoy in 1915 on one of the main streets. They were walking up and down the street and Liam is kind of berating her for staying with the Volunteers because they're with the Germans and how could she do this and so on. It's interesting, like, by this point, he's no longer a member of the National Volunteers because as a body, they'd kind of faded away and they weren't active in Fermoy at the time. But I, I think it's very revealing of a particular aspect of his character. Like, uh, Flory O'Donoghue in his own book refers to it as a stubborn streak at Liam's core. But this idea that he's very fixed on his own particular political ideals at this time would have been, he would have been a Redmondite or a supporter of home rule anyway. Like, Martin Lynch, Liam's brother, actually writes to Flory and writes about an episode that Flory doesn't put in his book. This is in Flory's papers where he said that he actually met Liam at the review of the National Volunteers in the Phoenix Park. Now, this is a major event in 1915. There's a picture of John Redmond being handed a flag by the National Volunteers. Redmond would have addressed them at the O'Connell Monument on O'Connell Street. And Liam, according to Martin, was present at that event as a member of the National Volunteers. So it's just, it's very interesting and a very overlooked aspect of his background that neither Florio Donoghue or Mita Ryan touch on in any detail, but it is confirmed by a number of counts at the time by people close to him. So that's where he is by 1916. He is a supporter of home rule. That That's what he would have considered. And I, I, I would emphasize that's not really unusual because, John, as you know yourself, that was the political mainstream at the time. As doubts were creeping in as the, as the war progressed and, you know, Redmond gets associated with that, the Irish recruitment into the war, you know, people were under the expectation of self-government at that time. They would have supported the efforts of home rule. So Liam Lynch in 1916, early 1916, it's not unusual in that respect. Well, Jerry, how does County Cork and County Cork nationalism and radicalism in particular influence Lynch as opposed to separatists from other parts of the country? I mean, he grew up in rural Limerick, but he lived near Cork. Anglesborough is only five miles from the Cork border. So Mitchellstown and Fromoy... They're two very interesting towns. Like Mitchellstown would have had memories of the land war. I mean, this, there was very bitter, you know, land agitation against the Kingston estate in Mitchellstown. Fermoy itself was a garrison town. Like Fermoy itself had two barracks of British soldiers. So there was a tradition of British soldiering in Fermoy. 
for my nest it wasn't necessarily considered like a, a nationalist hotbed shall we say so there was no real radical tradition within certainly for Moy anyway you know not quite there in Mitchestown at the time it certainly wasn't in the majority anyway of thinking and this is what Lynch is influenced by Lynch is influenced by you know the Gaelic League which many people remember that's why he's a member of the National Volunteers it doesn't seem that separatism really appeals to him I mean as I said he had an argument with his uh, godmother that you know, to be with the volunteers, to be with the Germans, i.e. the implication there being the enemy at the time in 1915. So while he is kind of steeped in that radical tradition within his own family, while he is certainly familiar with, you know, the revolutionary heroes and the revolutionary events of old, it's very striking it doesn't appeal to him. It doesn't seem to appeal to him by 1916. I mean, he is just working his way up to the ranks. He has got through his apprenticeship. He's just an ordinary shop assistant in Fermoy by April 1916. That's the influence his immediate environment has on him. That's where his politics are at at that point. Well, we all know about the events of 1916, but the events of 1916 in Cork are very different. And could you talk about that, perhaps the idea that Cork Republicans felt that they'd been dishonoured by not rising and how that affected Lynch? Well, you're right there, Carl. Like Cork itself didn't see major activity during Easter week, 1916, with the exception of one particular incident. Terence O'Sweeney and Tomás McCurk, I mean, it's kind of a series of convoluted events. They didn't, you know, start arising within Cork City itself. There was kind of negotiations there with the local clergy to kind of give over their arms and so on. And what was a very uh, controversial event for the volunteers, particularly after when uh, McCurk and McSweeney were condemned for that. But there is one major incident uh, outside Fermoy at a place called Bannard House, which is the home of the Kent family. Now, the Kent brothers, there was four of them in total, were members of the local volunteers in Cork. And they had, you know, involvement going back to the land war. They would have been known as, you know, major separatists, radicals, republicans, however you want to put it, within the locality and certainly by the authorities at the time. The RAC, the local RAC, go to arrest them. There's an RAC man killed. There's a shootout at Bannard House. And in the aftermath, the Kent brothers surrender. The youngest Richard Kent is killed and the three Kent brothers along with their mother are brought to the streets of Fermoy and they're arrested. Two of them are walking barefoot, Thomas and his brother William. And Thomas Kent is later executed on the 9th of May 1916. He's actually remains around the brothers brother's grave in Castle Lyons village actually in 2015. I was struck that, that the Irish Army chaplain actually noted the influence that the Kents have on Liam Lynch because that very day when they're being led through the streets of Fermoy after their arrest, Liam Lynch is there on the bridge going across the Blackwater River and he sees Thomas and William Kent being led barefoot to the streets and the scene shocks him. Tom Lynch, his brother later writes that, you know, he made a vow at his bedside that night to stand for the Republic and so on. But Lynch talked about this to several of his contemporaries, like the fact that Thomas Kent was later executed and Richard Kent died of his wounds later, this left an enormous impact on Lynch. John Joe O'Brien, who was a contemporary of Lynch's, recalls meeting him outside Fermoy the week after Thomas Kent's execution. And he knew of Lynch as a home ruler, or at least a home ruler supporter. And Lynch says to him, we should have been out. Every one of us should have been out with them. And John Joe O'Brien talks about how he was shocked by this, because this is not the Liam Lynch he knows. And Lynch would often refer to it to his brother Tom. It was, it was the fact that like he had witnessed up front that he had seen a man be arrested and that knowing that he was later executed. And like again, Lynch wasn't unique amongst many of that generation who were radicalized by the executions. But I think because he felt such a personal connection to the Kents, like David Kent, Thomas Kent's brother, would have been seen as a mentor to Liam Lynch. Like Lynch would have often sought his counsel. And you even see that in Todd Andrews' memoir, Dublin Made Me. Like they mentioned that a visit that they made to David Kent in early 1923. So I think because of that personal connection, this is what changes the course of Lynch's life, certainly changes the trajectory 
of his politics into the radical Republican tradition, certainly the one that becomes more widespread in the aftermath of the rising. Yeah, I mean, from reading your book, Jerry, and by the way, at this early stage, I recommend it to all our listeners. You know, you get the impression of Lynch, not necessarily as a charismatic kind of guy, but a kind of shy, bookish man, but a man who's really dedicated to something that he decides to dedicate himself to. Do you think that that's fair? Do you think that's why he rose up through the ranks of the volunteers when he joined them after the Easter Rising? I mean, John, you know yourself, you try to be objective when you write about these people, but I mean, sometimes they do impress you, like just, and I always think one of the most remarkable things about Lynch's character and what he achieved for himself is this extraordinary sense of self-belief that he has in himself and in his cause. You're, you're right. He was a very shy, bookish man. You see this borne out in accounts of people who knew him before this period. I mean, Moss Toomey, who left a brilliant account that's been republished several times in Republican news sheets, and particularly in a, in a booklet called The Story of Liam Lynch in 1973, he talked about meeting Lynch as a shop assistant before this period. And, you know, he talked of him as more like a scholar, not a man who'd be a leader of soldiers, so to speak. That's very typical. Lynch joins the Reformed uh, from my company of the Volunteers in 1917. He's immediately elected first lieutenant, which is quite striking. And he begins a sort of kind of method that he carries out in his other military roles. Like he goes to visit all the men in the area. He goes, and then when he works his way up to adjutant of the Fermoy Battalion, he goes to visit every company in the area. He has conferences with all the men. He, he listens to their ideas. And this recurs very much in the earlier accounts of his military career or his revolutionary career, shall we say, this collaborative nature that he hears them out. He discusses everything with them as much as he can. He hears out their ideas. And this is where he kind of really begins to impress people that he meets. Now, this is very interesting that people talk about, um, like Moss Toomey particularly talks about in that same account, that, you know, he found that Lynch kind of stuttered over his words and he'd get excited or carried away. Like some accounts, Tom Barry mentions it too in his memoir, this tendency to stutter when he gets a bit overly excited or carried away with himself, that he expresses himself very well in his writing and his ideas. And Lynch again turns to books as well. He reads a lot of books about soldiering and military strategy and so on. And again, it's kind of remarkable, which we'll talk about very shortly, that he becomes this very successful uh, guerrilla commander of Court Number 2, that he'd no soldiering experience himself. Like, it's not in his family background. I mean, looking at his siblings and, you know, his father, of course, is involved with the Fenians, but, like, there's no formal soldiering experience there within the wider Lynch family. So, to me, it's one of the most impressive things about him, that, like, you know, through sheer force of will and belief in himself and the cause, that he rises up to the ranks like that so quickly. So, like by the time the conscription begins in 1918, you know, he is recognized as a very impressive local officer as adjutant in the Fermoy Battalion. It does seem to me that Lynch, in common with other people of his generation, did have an element of fanaticism as well, though. I mean, in the sense that the idea is more important than himself, you know, or he can't separate himself from the idea of the republic that he's dedicated himself to. Well, you definitely, definitely we'll, we'll talk more about how that aspect comes in grain later on. But I mean, you do see it very early on. I mean, it's in 1917, he writes on the 1st of November, 1917, to his brother Tom in, uh, in a very long, meandering sentence. He says, we have declared for an Irish Republic and will not live under any other law. And this is often held up as like a slogan or a rallying cry does during the Civil War. I've seen this even in academic works. And no, it's a private comedy making letter to Tom that doesn't become well known until Florio Donahue puts in his book in 1954, and of course he calls it No Other Law. I take the other half of the quote to declare a republic, so yeah, we've, we've covered that between the two of us. The importance of that quote just shows how very early on, like again in his own words, that like how important the idea of the republic was to him, what it meant to him, it meant freedom from British rule. 
I mean, Dermot Ferreter has mentioned this several times that, you know, you don't really see a discussion of ideology amongst this generation. You know, what the Republic means, what kind of society. The idea of the Republic means this kind of blanket thing like freedom and so on. I mean, I would argue this is a bit more to Lynch's thinking. I mean, he, he was aware of Republican ideals, you know, at least filter through that kind of glorifying text like, you know, speeches from the dock. But um, yeah, like I think his devotion to the cause, it strikes a lot of his contemporaries and his family and his peers and so on. You know, this again would have singled him out amongst the officers under his command and, you know, the leadership above him. That was someone you could count on to fight and uphold the Republican ideal. Now, Jerry, could we discuss Liam Lynch's trajectory during the War of Independence? And as you were saying there, starting off uh, an officer in a, a local company. And Cork is such uh, an active county during the War of Independence. There's so much violence. How does that trajectory manifest itself? Well, it begins pretty much with the splitting up of the Cork Brigade in early 1919, just barely before the War of Independence begins. Lynch is appointed head of what becomes the Cork Number no. 2 Brigade. Obviously, sometimes this is referred to as the North Cork Brigade because it encompasses much of North Cork. And this is the area that would have been very familiar to Lynch, you know, encompassing from Moy, Mitchestown, Mallow, and so on. It seems to be that because his talents were really recognised during the conscription crisis in 1918, particularly by Thomas McCurtain, the head of the Corp Brigade, which is just the one brigade at the time, that he is kind of singled out for leadership of this particular brigade. And his officers would have voted him into this role, like, again, showing the respect that they had for him at this point. I mean, the gauntlet is pretty much thrown down on the 21st of January 1919. The activities in Solihead Bay from members of the South Tipperary Brigade Lynch, like other commandants, would have been eager to prove themselves. And he gets this chance with very, I kind of feel a forgotten episode from the early War of Independence that he wanted to show to IRHGHQ that they could do their own fighting in their own corner of the country. He approves the raid at this barracks in Ariglan, which is in northeast Cork. And his friend and close contemporary, Mick Fitzgerald, who would have been head of the Fermoy Battalion, would have led this operation. It was a raid on an REC barracks. Now, what's very interesting at the same time, Lynch is at a GHQ meeting up in Dublin. IRH GHQ, of course, led by Richard Mulcahy, who was the chief of staff. And of course, we have director of intelligence, Michael Collins. And Lynch makes a remark to Pax Whelan, who was a Waterford IRA commandant. And he said, I've started something that's going to shake up these fellows. So basically, Lynch was ordering this action while he's up in Dublin without the sanction of IRA GHQ, because there's no like orders given yet for these sort of raids. And we don't have a reaction from Richard Mulcahy, but Michael Collins is very congratulatory to Lynch when it's printed in the paper. So no one was killed in this raid, just like, you know, one RC guy was tied up while the others were at mass and there's a raid farms and other munitions and so on. But this shows very early on that while Lynch cultivates a strong relationship with IRA GHQ, and he's kind of unique amongst the core commandants in this respect, that he is capable of independent thought and action. And you see this with the Aragon RAC barracks raid, a really forgotten episode, I think, from early in the War of Independence. Now, the most notable action that happens after this is the thing called the Fermoy Arms Raid, which takes place on the 7th of September, 1919. And this is the first major action of the volunteers against British soldiers since the 1916 Easter Rising. I mentioned before that Fermoy is considered a garrison town, as in a British army garrison town. There's two barracks there. And Lynch and his leading officers would have noted that soldiers from the barracks would go to the local Protestant church every Sunday morning. And when they realized that these soldiers were armed, they said, here's another opportunity to gain arms. And Lynch and his officers carefully planned this operation involving companies from Cork Number 2 and some companies from other brigade areas. And a number of them used it with the aid of two cars. They ambushed these soldiers on their way to Mass on the 7th of September, 1919. 
one soldier is killed, a guy called Private William Jones, who's 19 years old. He is killed in this attack, and Lynch is wounded. Now, he's actually accidentally shot by someone on the volunteer side. He's the only one wounded on their side. It's a bullet goes through his shoulder, and he recuperates for several weeks. But this was a major action, because for one, again, we have the volunteers engaging with British soldiers here. However brief the operation was, they successfully got their arms. But this results in reprisals on the town of Fermoy. Soldiers from the barracks, these would have been people who would have known Private Jones, they attacked local businesses in Fermoy and so on. There's some gunfire with the local volunteers. And Mick Fitzgerald, Lynch's close friend in the Fermoy Battalion, is one of the many arrested in the aftermath. And this sort of paves the way for Mick Fitzgerald's later hunger strike in 1920. Just to say a little bit about Mick Fitzgerald, him and Lynch would have known each other from 1917. He was actually nearly a decade older than Lynch. Matt Flood, who was in Cork Number 2, talks that Mick Fitzgerald was kind of uh, considered an old man by the rest of them because he was so much older. But he seemed to project an air of maturity and authority that the other men appreciated. And like Lynch, he was someone very devoted. He was a single labourer and so on. And there's talk that like Fitzgerald would have worked all day and then had his men drilling all night and going to the different company areas within his battalion and so on. And he's regarded by Lynch as one of his idols. Now, Lynch is said to have two heroes in the period, Mick Fitzgerald and Sean Trace, who, of course, is also dies and he's shot, he's shot dead in Dublin in 1920. But Mick Fitzgerald had a huge influence on Liam Lynch, and that's kind of important as we talk about Lynch's end. And then when we come into 1920, you know, Lynch oversees two other important actions. One is the kidnapping of General Cuthbert Lucas. He was associated with the British Army's 6th Division that were stationed in Cork. General Lucas and two of his men are captured during a fishing expedition in the locality outside Fermoy, and Lynch brings them. He's held in the brigade area initially, but this was high-profile stuff. Like This made headlines. Another reprisal was visited on the town of Fermoy in the aftermath. When Lucas is later released, he actually he's left to escape from company, not by Lynch. Uh, this was in another brigade area. He kind of talks that he was a gentleman treated by gentlemen, which probably didn't endear him much to his British appearances one. But again, it's another high-profile action. This is what, you know, gains respect of the men under Lynch's command as officers. Like, not only did Lynch mastermind like from my arms raiding General Lucas's kidnapping, he directly took part in these events as well. And then when he forms the Cork Number no. 2 flying column in late 1920, he takes part in the Mallow Barracks Raid, which takes place in September 1920. This is covered very vividly in uh, Ernie O'Malley's memoir on Another Man's Wound and, and other accounts as well. But that was another high-profile action, also resulted in reprisal on Mallow Town. But again, these actions, like from my arms raid, kidnapping of General Lucas, the raid on Mallow Barracks, these are some of the most famed IRA actions, not just in Cork, but of the War of Independence itself. And this is what helps Lynch to get the military prestige he has by early 1921. As you say, Jerry, like those are very high-profile events, and they got Liam Lynch kudos. They also got a lot of arms, actually, between... They did indeed, and, yeah. yeah. ...and Mallow, which is no small thing for the IRA of that time, because they had hardly any arms or ammunition. It did strike me, though, that for the latter part, certainly, of the War of Independence... Lynch is really more of an administrative figure than, you know, the dashing guerrilla commander in the vein of Tom Barry, or the image we have anyway of Tom Barry. Yeah, certainly certainly he seems to be moving into that role by March 1921. So Lynch would have been very keen for mutual brigade cooperation. Seamus Robinson was OC of the South Tipperary Brigade, which adjoins the, or at least partly Cork Number 2 anyway. And Lynch visits him at the end of 1920, and he says to Robinson, we need better brigade cooperation because, you know, the British come, the British, and this would include obviously the auxiliaries and black and tans and so on. But like when they raid Robinson's brigade area, they come into Cork Number Two area and they disrupt Lynch's men and maybe operations they plan and so on. And from that conversation, Robinson and Lynch come to realize that some sort of new authority is needed within the IRA. 
And this is because of what becomes the IRA's divisional structure. At the instructions of Richard Mulcahy and IRA GHQ, they form the, the first Southern Division, of which Lynch becomes the OC of. Now, the first Southern Division would have included the three Corps Brigades, the three K Brigades, the two Waterford Brigades, and the West Limerick Brigade. So Lynch is over the command now of over 30,000 men, and he's appointed this role in March 1921. Now, what's very interesting, and it didn't strike me until I read the Richard Mulcahy papers, He's offered the role initially, and then he turns it down. And he doesn't turn it down from any lack of bravery or interest in what the role would entail. But he turns it down for the same reason he allegedly turned down the post of Deputy Chief of Staff of the IRA twice already. He doesn't want to let down the men under his command, as in the men in Cork Number 2. You know, He doesn't want to let down people in his local area, so to speak. So he, he says this in letters to his brother and his mother in terms of turning down the Deputy Chief of Staff. But a month later, that changes. Like, you know, within a month, he's appointed the role. And it's very curious as to why. But you also see the timing of another event. He becomes head of the Sound Monster Circle of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Now, the IRB, and John, you know yourself, we could do a whole podcast on the IRB. And I'm not sure we would all agree, you know, if you've got 10 other historians, what we'd all agree, the nature of the IRB. But my understanding of the IRB after 1916, that the likes of Collins, Mulcahy, Ona Duffy and others, the IRB essentially becomes a network for those within the volunteers and later the IRA. Sort of an intelligence network helps them to plan different operations and so on. And Lynch would have recognized the value of this. He becomes a member of the IRB, you know, not long after he becomes a member of the volunteers. And Lynch, when he's appointed the member of the South Munster Circle of the IRB, he has a seat on the IRB Supreme Council. And this is the governing authority of the IRB. This is what makes the decisions and expects the other circles to follow them. This definitely appealed to Lynch. So, you know, not only is he over command of the area that has the heaviest fighting within the country during the War of Independence, he also head of the IRB in the same area. This would have given him the influence that he wanted to, you know, spread, share the wealth, shall we say, of like not just, you know, the fighting happening in the key areas. Because by early 1921, Cork Number 2 is under pressure. You see this in comms that Lynch is writing to, you know, Collins, Mulcahy and Geroyd O'Sullivan, who on IRA GHQ as well. There's a very kind of precarious event in early March 1921 where Lynch is nearly captured. Now, he'd been captured briefly before, but Terence McSweeney in 1920, he was let go. He was under a false name. The training camp in Nad in North Cork is raided. This is due to the efforts of a spy. Lynch is nearly captured. There's other operations that are betrayed. There's not many of the regular ambushes being carried out that Lynch and others would like. So again, this is another reason why Lynch assumes the role of First Sudden Division. And you see a kind of a newly emboldened Lynch, I would argue, in his comms to Mulcahy from this juncture. Richard Mulcahy had enormous respect for Lee Lynch. I think there's a lot in their character that was quite similar. You know, they're kind of very austere, self-serious individuals. They're very keen on military strategy and so on. Big difference with Lynch, of course, that he was a local guerrilla commander. Mulcahy wasn't, but there seems to have been great fondness between them, and they did enjoy working together. Like, it's very striking that even decades later after the Civil War, Richard Mulcahy, he calls Lynch the line of the resistance movement, like his ideal IRA officer. This is after the Civil War, he's saying this. So the respect they had was quite enormous. And you see this in Mulcahy's comms to Lynch in March, April 1921. He's so delighted that Lynch is in the role, like Lynch is his guy down there in Cork, so to speak. But when you see Lynch's comms to Mulcahy, he is very much determined to prove himself his own man. Like he is putting forward ideas that you know, certainly seem maybe shocking when you read them in isolation. They certainly carry their own cold logic. Like with the rate of Republican prisoners being executed in early 1921, he suggests to Mulcahy that, you know, in re reference to the reprisal attacks like burning big houses and so on, that what they could do is take a local loyalist and shoot them dead for every Republican prisoners executed. 
And what Lynch means is very clearly go into their homes, take them out and shoot them. You know, just a local loyalist in response to one of their own being executed. This idea recurs several times. He even writes again to Geroyder Sullivan in late 1921 with this suggestion if war with the British were to resume. So there's a degree of certainly ruthlessness that you see set in there. But on that topic, though, I mean, yeah, he suggests the killing loyalists and Mulcahy doesn't ultimately let him do it, really. But no. they, they do they do embark on burning down uh, their houses, which is something he returns to in the Civil War. And I mean, going back to the point I was making earlier on, I mean, Lynch does have seem to have a particular hardness and animus towards people he regards as imperialists and stuff. And he often means, you know, the Anglo-Irish class, the gentry class. What do you put that down to? I put that down to his heart and republicanism at the time. I mean, I, I know the particular comment you're, you're referring to there, there's a, O'Malley's descriptions of Lynch in both on another man's wound, the singing flame are, are quite brilliant and quite vivid as typical of O'Malley's writing style. But there's a reference that he makes to Lynch. He says, those bloody British imperialists, you know, I don't give a damn what GHQ thinks. I'm going to order the burning of these houses. I think that's just a result of his republicanism. Again, the idea that the Unionist, Protestant, Anglo-Irish gentry, the othering of them. Like Lynch didn't know these people. He didn't understand them. That's typical of many at the time, particularly within the revolutionary movement. It's not surprising that that's that's how he regards them. You know, it's interesting that like at one point, Mulcahy writes to Lynch, it's either May or June 1921, he writes to Lynch asking what happened. Mrs. Lindsay, the, you know, the, the rather infamous case of the lady who betrayed those in the Dripsy ambush and she's kidnapped by the IRA. This is in the Cork number three area. Now, Lynch, to be clear, was not over the first subdivision at this time. This happened. But Mulcahy is writing to Lynch, very scathing of the fact that Mrs. Lindsay has been killed. Him and Cottle Brew had ordered that she was to be released. And it, it, it's a disappointing for me as a research. I don't see Lynch's response to that. But there's a con that he writes in late 1920, and it just shows that the tenor of the, the conflict itself had changed. That, you know, he gives very instruction, very clear instructions as OC of Court Number Two that women as spies are not to be executed, they're just to be deported. There's no question of them being executed at, at that point in late 1920. So maybe this is for a wider discussion how the tenor of the conflict has, has changed in just such a few short months. Now, Jerry, you mentioned there earlier about Mulcahy's views on Lynch. How did the other divisional commanders in Munster view Lynch? And as we move further on into the conflict and the, the truce and the civil war, personal relationships do play a major part in how people react towards the treaty. I would agree with that, Carl, definitely. Um, it's interesting when descriptions of that meeting in March 1921, where they formed the first sudden division, this is the first time Many of them from the other brigades have met him for the first time. Um, Paddy Paul from Waterford says he was very struck by Lynch's uh, disciplined approach. And he talks about him being very priestly and so on, which is a description of Lynch that recurs quite a lot of this priestly, self-serious man. Now, I, I think sometimes it's a bit overplayed. People like Moss Toomey and George Power talk of a very warm, humorous man. But I think for the most part, Lynch kept a lot of those within the IRA at a personal remove. Like he had a relationship with Bridie Keyes, who I mentioned earlier, they had begun a romance around 1917 which continued up until his death they were engaged after the truce so yeah i think a lot of them weren't really sure of the man you know beneath you know the man not to say lynch had a mask up but he certainly had walls up you know not really kind of betraying much to the people it's just one of the best accounts i found of lynch and how people like that who don't really know him that well regard him there's an account by matt flood who was in cork number two he was a member of the flying column and he talks about lynch being very kind of serious and no nonsense but he would often find Lynch up late watching over the men. This recurs a lot, this idea that Lynch couldn't sleep. His brain was on fire thinking of military ideas and strategy and so on. I think for some of those who didn't know what to make of him, I think the respect they had for him is still quite considerable. They recognized the devotion to the cause and the men under his command. 
the other kind of rural Munster commandants didn't really know what to make from Seamus Robinson. I don't think seems very complimentary of him in his witness statement. He says that Lynch regarded Mulcahy as a high priest and, you know, GHQ or like, you know, Children of the Light. Or it's, it's just a brilliant, vivid description Robinson has of it. But Florio Donahue writes to Robinson, says he thinks he's unfair that Lynch was capable of independent thought and action. I, I would lean towards Florio's thinking on that because you do see that with Lynch from very early on in the War of Independence, as I mentioned with Eric Glenn, and you see that with the Fermoy Arms trade and so on. Tom Barry first got to know him better from the appointment of OC at the first subdivision on. And Barry talks that he was impressed by Lynch's military reputation. He felt he, he was a bit stubborn. But then Barry says, this is in Guerrilla Days in Ireland, Barry says, well, I was stubborn too. Like, you know, I wasn't really unique to Lynch. I mean, across the board, they're impressed with him. I think some people felt he lacked a bit of a personable quality with them. He kept, as I said, he was kept them out of a move. He was very serious. But I mean, that was something he just had for his peers and in the IRA. I mean, he was a, a warm, friendly character from the accounts of those closest to him anyway. The people in IRHHQ, Mulcahy and Collins, seem to have a huge regard for him, for what he achieved on the ground, and the fact that he cultivated strong relationships with them. You see this in the offering of the post of Deputy Chief of Staff and so on. And they were delighted, as I said, that he was OC of the First Southern Division. Now, in this period, as we're getting towards the truce, does Lynch discuss his political views, where he sees things going, if there's a truce and the negotiations with the British? Yeah, it's very interesting when you look at Lynch's political thinking, because it's important to understand this for when he becomes leader of the IRA during the Civil War. Lynch writes very early on to his brother Tom, the army has to hew the way to freedom for politics to follow. And it's a very brief comment, and I would argue it's Lynch's second most famous remark that he makes after the no other law one, because it shows Lynch's thinking in terms of his militant republicanism, that the IRA always has to be at the forefront, politics comes after. And you see this recur again and again in his comms and in his personal correspondence. Like he kind of disparages to his brother Tom that men in his local area in Anglesborough would get involved in political activity and not the IRA. And there's a very telling memo that I think does get quite overlooked. Michael Hobson mentions it in his War of Independence book that Lynch writes this lengthy memo to Mulcahy in late 1921 where he says, we must admit during the last period of hostilities, he means the War of Independence, that civic bodies such as the Dáil, the county councils, and then, of course, he means Sinn Féin and so on, completely failed. They were a total failure. And Lynch suggests this idea of like Sinn Féin members becoming an auxiliary to the IRA and so on. And it's a very lengthy, it's nearly three pages, this memo, very kind of detailed ideas. And it's very kind of telling as to how he regards the political side of the movement. He doesn't seem to value their contribution to the revolution. And like this is one reason the War of Independence is so successful, as you know, not just the considerable actions of the IRA against British forces, but also the mass public support for the Dáil and the underground bodies of the Dáil and so on, you know, Sinn Féin being voted in and subsequent elections, even though, you know, a lot of them are un- uncontested and so on. Lynch has no regard for the political side of the movement. And he's very unique amongst high-profile IRA commanders in mid-1921. He does not stand for that election. Now, there's two different accounts, one that he was asked and he refused, and one that the message never reached him. But, you know, he made it clear that he was happy not to be elected. Unlike others like Ono Duffy, you know, Sean Moyle and Lee Mellows and so on. Like he's as militant as they are, perhaps more so, but he's no interest in the political side of the movement. And that has its impact later on when we come to the Civil War, particularly the height of the Civil War. Yeah, I think that's an important point, though, Jerry, like that he did not understand, you know, his position as a revolutionary, if you like. He saw it as a soldier and stuff. But that is, again, it's not that uncommon. I mean, it comes off very strongly off Ernie O'Malley and so on. O'Malley says. Absolutely. O'Malley, of course, is very eloquent as a writer, so he puts it very well when he says something like, you know, there was a hardness to our thinking. We thought we were above the people or something like that. 
Yeah, and Flory O'Donoghue, I think the more I got to the more I just huge admiration for Flory O'Donoghue and what he achieved with his own book on Lynch. But Flory kind of says Lynch lacked the temperament to become a politician. Like, he, he just didn't have it in him. And that's someone who admired him and commemorated him, saying that about him as well. But John, you're right. Has some, has some similar comment as well, doesn't he, in later years? Yeah, exactly. You know, like, Pat O'Donnell, I think, I think he says, I think it's the Unchimic Keown, he says it to, that, um, Lynch just had no time for politics, like which which is another blunt way of putting it. Again, Pat O'Donnell would have known Lynch, particularly during the kind of later phase of, of the revolutionary period, a bit more. But John, as you pointed out, it's not unique to Lynch as an IRA leader. But this aspect of his character becomes very problematic later on when he has to determine political policy for republicanism. Well, this is the thing. So moving on our discussion, we have the truce. And then, of course, we have the negotiations, which end in the treaty. And I think one of the most valuable things in your book is teasing out the way this is communicated to senior IRA people, and particularly IRB people, because Liam Lynch was actually briefed by Michael Collins on how the negotiations were going and that it would not lead to a republic. It's very interesting. Could you just talk a bit about that and how Collins tried to prepare people in the IRB for the compromise? Yeah, I mean, this recurs in more than one place that Lynch was well aware compromise was coming. Now, Lynch would have distrusted the negotiations that began in September 1921, there's a brilliant account from a volunteer in court number two called Michael O'Connell, who Lynch would have known the family quite well. And Lynch says to O'Connell in the conversation, August 1921, the politicians will defeat us, which I think, again, is very telling of his regard for politicians. But Lynch was a member of the IRB Supreme Council, and the IRB Supreme Council would have been briefed by Collins on his returns to Dublin during the treaty negotiations. And Liam D.C.'s memoir, Brother Against Brother, now, I have some problems with that memoir, but his, his descriptions of Lynch are, are very interesting. He talks about a meeting of the IRB in Cork, and DC's there, Collins is there, Lynch is there. Now, Don, Flory O'Donoghue is there as well. Flory mentions this briefly in his book, actually. But Collins is about to go into the meeting, and he says to Lynch and DC, and DC well, how am I going to tell them to prepare for compromise? And Lynch says to Collins, don't. I don't tell them now, you know. Now, the problems I have with that memoir, it's very clearly underwritten, and it's the first draft, like, DC doesn't elaborate much on what that means, but there's a very overlooked source, and I have to credit John Reagan's counter-revolution, but for bringing this to my attention, Sean Myrtle, who was secretary to the IRB, very close to Collins, has a lengthy memoir, unpublished, in Richard Mulcahy's additional papers in UCD. It's very invaluable for perspectives on the IRB and leading figures of the period. And He says when Collins brought the draft treaty to the IRB, this is, I think, the 3rd of December, 1921, this is referenced in other places that at this meeting, the Supreme Council, or at least the members who were there, wrote a draft oath. So the kind of cheat, shall we say, is that the oath of allegiance to the British king, that, you know, it's an oath of allegiance to the constitution, hopefully a republican constitution, and an oath of faithfulness to the British monarch. And Myrtle says that Lynch was central to the drafting of this new oath, along with Geroy de Sullivan and Ono Duffy. And now Myrtle frames it in a way where he says, like, well, then I don't understand how Lynch turned against us. Now, I, I think he's, he's simplifying it a bit there, to be honest, but Lynch was well aware compromise was coming. I don't think he realized how much he would be unhappy with that compromise and how far that compromise went. The closest we have to a direct reaction to what he had to the treaty when it signed on the 6th of December, Mostumi talks in one interview with the historian Sean O'Mahony, but O'Mahony says that Lynch was completely shocked by the treaty and the terms of the treaty, particularly the oath, and which is kind of fascinating when we, we think of what Myrtle says. And you know, the treaty ports and, you know, other, other aspects. IRA's first certain division, or the first division of the IRA, which Lynch, again, is head of, to publicly come out against the treaty. Now, this is often mentioned in many books, many accounts, but if you actually look at the statement they released, they're like, look, we're opposed to the treaty as signed, 
but here are some suggestions we have for revising the treaty. It's like these kind of bullet point suggestions. Very interesting. Like I, I think the document is very rarely published in full. Like, and this would have been like you know, if not completely written by Lynch, would have had, he would have had a huge influence on this. Lynch's thinking in doing this is because he knows he's in the minority in the IRB Supreme Council. He, he writes to his brother Tom and Flurry O'Donoghue on this. He says, I respect Mick Collins as a soldier and a man, but thank God all parties can agree to differ. What you see in these letters is that Lynch is worried about, like, look, we're going to divide over the treaty. And Lynch even says it'll probably be passed by the doll. And he says, once that happens, we have to stay united because we could have renewed war against Britain. Like, this this recurs very early on, like in December 21 and early 1922. Lynch is worried that if the IRA does not stay united, they won't be ready for a fight against Britain, which was the worry of a lot of IRA leadership. It's kind of interesting that's where Lynch is going. Like, I mean, yeah, he's opposed to the treaty. It's a total betrayal of his Republican ideals. But, you know, unity is very important. And this is what drives him through the early months of 1922. Well, Terry, that's fascinating what you're saying about Lynch during this period and his views evolving or being more nuanced to do with the treaty. Because Mm. the popular perception is that Lynch is the the arch fanatic, the most diehard anti-treatyite. But can you talk about that period? As the IRA starts to split, as the political movement starts to split, Lynch is not the most radical and he's still trying to find compromises, isn't he? Yeah, that's a perfect description of it, actually, Carl. Um, It was actually the one part of the book I found the most difficult and the most fascinating because in the first six months of 1922, there is so much going on. Like the revolutionary movement completely splits across coming to Manch and Fein, the IRA, of course. Once the IRB Supreme Council takes the vote in December 1921, Lynch is in the majority to support the treaty or, you know, give the approval of DAW members to, to vote on it. Lynch sees the IRA as the mechanism for unity within the revolutionary movement, because that's all he knows. And we, we have accounts of Lynch kind of being central to a lot of these conferences. I mean, there's conferences within the IRB that, like, Florio Dunu puts a lot of emphasis on them, but they, they really go nowhere. They're just a talking shop for both sides, really. But Lynch is central to a lot of these IRA conferences. Now, to be clear, he stands with the Republic. He stands with some sort of settlement on his own terms. I mean, he's with Rory O'Connor, Lee Mellows, Sean Russell and Seamus O'Donovan, the leading IRA GHQ figures opposed to the treaty when they put forward to Mulcahy, along with other divisional commandants like Ernie O'Malley, that they are not happy with the treaty and they're going to have an IRA convention. Lynch supports that idea, but he wants to find some formula with Collins, Mulcahy and O'Duffy, who would have been pro-treaty. O'Duffy becomes chief of staff of the pro-treaty wing of the IRA to find some sort of formula that works. Now, Lynch becomes chief of staff of the anti-treaty section of the IRA in really April 1922. We always say March, but obviously the convention uh, reconvened in early April, and then he's finally settled into the role, and he has his executive and so on. But there's already issues very early on within the anti-treaty side. And I've seen Brian Hanley often mention this, that people forget that like the anti-treaty IRA is not a monolith body. Like They don't all agree with each other. And certainly members of the executive and, you know, leading IRA commandants on the anti-treaty side do not agree with Liam Lynch and what he's doing. And they make that very clear to him. With regard to Liam Lynch's stance on the treaty, I mean, it does seem to me, having read your book, that it is kind of equivocal. So Lynch says on a number of occasions, the treaty isn't all bad, actually. And he does kind of say we might not be in the British Commonwealth for very long, which is, of course, Michael Collins' position, the stepping stone. And given this, I find it hard to understand why Lynch is taking it as a kind of obdurate anti-treaty position. I mean, he says things like it's dishonourable and it would dishonour the dead and stuff. But I I struggled to establish what his coherent position was, though. Well, what you described there, John, 
he's saying things that are very close to the stepping stone arguments of Collins. That was in a letter he wrote to his brother Tom in December 1921. And Tom Lynch, his brother, was probably his closest confidant. Tom was very Republican himself. The influence the two brothers had on each other is often noted. So he would have confided a lot in Tom. I think, I think because Tom was a priest as well, he kind of would have given Liam a lot of spiritual counsel. So he would have been honest with Tom where he stood. I think... And remember, John, that's December 1921. I think what puts Lynch off through January, February, March is what he regards as the bad attitude of his opponents on the pro-judicial side that not allowed them to have the convention. But I think, you know, it's a struggle within himself, too, as to what he wants. Like, you know, Lynch is not a political animal. We've already established that. Like, like it's not very clear what formula is going to work. But that's not clear to Collins and Mulcahy either. I mean, I, I think Collins and Mulcahy do want to find some, particularly Mulcahy want to find some accommodation with Lynch in the middle. There's people on their side like Arthur Griffith and Kevin O'Higgins who are opposed to this completely. And Lynch had his own troubles to deal with. Rory O'Connor and Lee Mallow's and Ernie O'Malley also make it clear to him that they're not happy with the approach that he's taking. I mean, the Civil War almost begins in March 1922. There's initial crisis in Limerick when, you know, the local IRA there, the anti-treaty IRA, take issue with that. Ernie O'Malley gets involved. Lynch is sent down with Oscar Trainer on the instructions of Richard Mulcahy to try and settle the situation. And Lynch then writes to Tom that now it's, there's a truce and, you know, there's an agreement and so on. It doesn't, out, outbreak of fighting doesn't occur at that time. And Liam writes to Tommy, says the stunt in Limerick was a disgrace to both sides, especially the Cork and Tipperary men. And you see this recur sometimes that now the Cork and Tipperary men, he's referring to like the anti treaty side there. He says this, he, he doesn't have time for some of the diehards on his side. I personally don't find this position very difficult to reconcile. I mean, yes, he wants a settlement, but he wants the settlement on his own terms. He wants an IRA just devoted to the Republic, and that's never going to work. Like, he's at least trying. He's at least sincere. He's doing more than others on his own side are doing, I'd argue. Now, yes, it's a bit haphazard. It's not very well thought out. I completely agree with that. But it's at least an attempt at something. But I think he increasingly gets put off by what he regards as the bad fate of those on his own side, that they won't meet him in the middle, or rather his idea of the middle. But you see, that all kind of comes astray then in, in June 1922. You know, there's a split within the anti-treaty side. There's a convention of the anti-treaty the IRA in June, in mid-June 1922, just after the failed pact election where Tom Barry puts forward motion at the convention for the British to withdraw. You know, it's defeated by Lynch and the other certain first division officers. Lynch is briefly deposed the chief of staff, replaced by Joe McKelvey. They're locked out of the four courts, him, the first division officers. They retreat to Clarence Hotel over the Liffey. Like, it's an awful mess. It's an awful incoherent mess. Like, they can't agree on what the terms that have been put forward by Mulcahy and Collins, they can't agree on what their own stance is. And no, other things have happened too. I mean, I mentioned the pact election already. I mean, the Norton Offensive, this doomed Norton Offensive that I find not a lot of historians can agree on the exact nature of it, but like with Ireland that come to nothing, you know, there's bitterness over that too. You know, and then when you have the assassination of Henry Wilson and a question mark over Collins's role in that and subsequent kidnapping of Ginger O'Connell, you know, events really accelerate up until the 28th of June, 1922. But on the night of the 27th of June, 1922, there's a conference with Lynch and Mellows and O'Connor and so on. And there's a coming together of minds and there's an agreement, not a formal vote, but there's an agreement that Liam Lynch will resume the role of chief of staff of the anti-treaty section of the IRA. And Liam Deasy talks about this, one of the better parts of Brother Against Brother, where they retreat to the Clarence Hotel and Lynch's not anxious about any attack, even though the pro-treaty troops have withdrawn to their barracks and clearly something is about to happen in response to the kidnapping of Ginger O'Connell. But in the early hours of the 28th of June, 1922, Liam Lynch, along with other anti-treaty IRA commanders, is not thinking of civil war. 
uh, very crucially, they're not prepared for civil war. And that's what impacts what happens immediately after. Well, that's it, Jerry. Like, um, how does Lynch react to the provisional government attacking the four courts? And how quickly does he settle into that role that it really is a war now? Uh, immediately. Florio Dunham sums it up very well in no other law. He says, nothing could have brought both sides together, and he means the anti-treaty side, than the cruel bludgeoning of the four courts. Liam Deasy talks about him and Lynch sitting in their hotel room in the Clarence Hotel, listening to the bombardment of the four courts, and Deasy says, for us, it seemed like the death of the dream. And so for Lynch now, there's no more negotiation. There's no more talking about a unified IRA. But crucially, there's no plan. There's a meeting of Lynch and first subdivision officers in the Clarence Hotel. Devil Air is there, Cahill Brew is there, others are there too. There's an agreement that Lynch is going to resume the role of Chief of Staff. And I find this very interesting because I always thought that Michael Collins appointed himself Commander-in-Chief of the National Army, which he did. And then Lynch appoints himself, with no controversy on his own side, Chief of Staff of the IRA. Of the IRA. And Lynch immediately goes down south. And there's two incidents that are very interesting. That He's briefly captured by uh, pro-treaty IRA troops under Liam Tobin, who bring him to Wellington, now Griffith Barracks, where Ronald Duffy is. Now, Duffy, remember, at this point, is Chief of Staff of the pro-treaty section of the IRA. Not for very long. McCahy um, is to replace him shortly. But O'Duffy says to Lynch, uh, what do you think of what's going on? And Lynch goes, I think you're all mad. And O'Duffy seems to take that, that Lynch is going to remain neutral and he lets him go. Uh, Lynch and other first subdivision officers uh, stop in Castle Cumber Barracks in Kilkenny. They're detained by pro-treaty troops briefly and let go. The pro-treaty troops ask for a souvenir of Lynch's a signature, and they say Lynch signed an agreement later on in the pro-treaty press, and Lynch says, I never did. But I, I think Lynch was deliberately vague as well, and definitely, I think, with the Ono Duffy conversation, there's a misinterpretation there. But he immediately sets up a GHQ in Mallow. He meets some of the GHQ, the anti-treaty um, GHQ down there. And Limerick is the initial focus, Limerick City, because both sides knew whoever holds Limerick City over the Shannon can control a considerable components of the Southwest. Now, this is where the term the Munster Republic comes from, or Liam Lynch's Munster Republic. And a term I have to emphasize appears nowhere in contemporary IRA correspondence at the time, doesn't appear in any Republican news sheet or propaganda that I've seen, and I've seen quite a bit. I mean, there's reference of like, um, you know, the IRA holds the south of the Republic. I've seen that, but the Munster Republic was not an alternate date that Liam Lynch set up. He was talking about holding below what's called the Limerick Waterford Defensive Line, territory below for the existing Republic. This is to be kind of a defensive hold on the area that they had to present, prevent the onset of pro-tree, now National Army forces sweeping into the area. But there's no grand strategy on the part of Lynch for this. So Limerick City is key to this. And he has negotiations with Michael Brennan that break down after a few days because Brennan secretly brings pro-treaty troops into the city and the Battle of Limerick begins. And Lynch at this point is now in Clonmel and Tipperary. He begins this idea called a field to GHQ where he moves his GHQ around because he complains to De Valera the, the one failing he had with GHQ during the War of Independence that they're always up in Dublin. Now, ironically, John, as we know, he, he does eventually go on to have GHQ in Dublin for a few months. But issue is a field GHQ. He's moving around with his key officers, his adjutant like Moss Toomey or Madge Cummer, Madge Clifford at the time, who was his secretary and so on. They're moving around these key fighting areas to try and get a hold of it. But as we know, and you know, the National Army, you know, have the coastal landings, you know, Waterford, Cork, Kerry and so on. And this southern territory swiftly collapses in a number of weeks. And when you look at Lynch's comms, and John, I'm sure you've looked at a lot of them at this time, Lynch, 
all he can do is kind of make suggestions, you know, very kind of pertinent, urgent suggestions as to the movement of troops and so on. But he doesn't really have any influence as to what's happening on the ground. I mean, there's a, the, the big stand at Kilmalak by the anti-treaty IRA. And I think some of the success, the limited brief success they have in this period is just down to the initiative of whoever is commanding on the ground. But uh, Lynch, in these weeks, doesn't have much influence. And he's almost relishing the return to the familiar guerrilla tactics of the War of Independence. Like he remarks to Ernie O'Malley, who he put over the Eastern Command, that we may have to return to the guerrilla tactics of old. And he even suggests to O'Malley to do so even before they've done so in the Southwest. So, yeah, I think Operation Order Number 9 is the order that he issues then in early August advocating the return to the guerrilla tactics. And this is when you see the burning of barracks and buildings, you know, across much of the southwest, particularly particularly Cork, like the Fomoy Barracks, you know, Mallow Barracks, Mitchellstown Castle, Kilworth Camp, which ironically is named Liam Lynch Camp in the 1960s. The intention being, of course, to prevent, you know, the movement of National Army troops and the use of these buildings by the National Army. There's blowing up of bridges and so on. The Mallow Viaduct is a very controversial destruction. There's, the order is issued for that. And this happens like during this period where the Republicans are losing territory. And the last town that they hold is Tremoy, ironically, where Lynch had kind of made his name, so to speak, as a commander during the War of Independence. And this is where what we call the guerrilla phase begins. And, you know, once Fermoy is abandoned by Lynch and the anti-treaty RA, that is the end of what we call the conventional phase of the Civil War. And the guerrilla phase now begins. Yeah, I mean, in one way, it's a big ask, I think, for Lynch as commander-in-chief of this guerrilla army to suddenly turn it into something like a regular army and whole territory and and so on. On the other hand, lots of people looking back on his own side said, you know, there's this strange timidity about Liam Lynch and that we almost threw away whatever advantage we had at the start of the Civil War in terms of the anti-treaty military position. So there's a truce in Limerick, as you said. They didn't really defend Cork City. They abandoned it after a pretty brief fight south of the city and they quickly enough ran away and dispersed to the mountains and you know people like O'Malley and others Tom Barry would later say any advantage that we had in terms of momentum or numbers or experience was thrown away by Leibniz would you go along with that? Yeah I would agree with that perception I mean it's seen across the board from you know, hard militant figures who, of course, had the advantage of reflecting decades later that it's funny, Liam Deasy talks about he didn't advocate the return to guerrilla tactics. And then there's a lengthy memo, I think it's a must in his papers of DC advocating the return of guerrilla tactics. I think Seamus Robinson, just to return to him again, is very scathing at Lynch this period. He he compares like the fact that Lynch didn't send a lot of the Southern forces up to Dublin as the wider country not turning out for the Easter Rising, which Robinson, as a veteran of the Rising, you know, obviously felt very hard in 1916. In his view, that was similar in 1922. There's scathing accounts by local commandants and officers on the ground, and particularly retrospectively, John, and I'm sure you've read a lot of them as well, of Lynch's strategic thinking in the period. Like Robert Brennan, in his book, Allegiance, which is mostly reproduced in his witness statement, you know, he, he, he has some very vivid descriptions of Lynch in these weeks. And he talks about, I think it's in Mallow, where he talks about that Lynch treated the prisoners very well and he let them have dinners and let them have free movement around the barracks. And Moss Toomey complains to Robinson. He says, we may as well just fire at their legs. Like, this is how useful this is. Like, you know, as you say, there's a degree of timidity there on Lynch. I think I would describe it more as a denial, a denial of the kind of conflict that they're in at the moment. I think what seems to really dent Lynch's confidence is the collapse of the truce in Limerick. Like he, he writes a very interesting calm to DC in September 1923. He says, the enemy has adopted numerous intrigues against us, the letting down of negotiations before the Civil War, the abandoning of the pact election, the collapse of the truce in Limerick. 
And it's for that reason, Lynch is not interested in seeking peace. She's not interested in opening negotiations with the Free State at any point all the way up until his death. Now, I'm jumping ahead slightly here, but Lynch's attitude, and you can criticize it, but just understand it a bit more. Lynch's attitude is like, look, I've tried negotiation, I've tried peace, I've tried to put the best foot forward here and present terms to one, and I'm, I'm ignored or I'm deceived every single time I do it. Why would I do it now? Well, Jerry, if you were to follow the Facebook version of history in the comment section, Eamon de Valera was the man behind the Civil War and he directed it all. But what did you find reading through all the papers about the relationship between Lynch and de Valera during the Civil War? It's fascinating, their relationship. I sometimes think I nearly could have done a whole book on that, nearly. Like, it's interesting that in the popular memory of the Civil War, it's always distilled between this kind of comic book version of a conflict between two leading personalities, i.e. Michael Collins' name and de Valera, and a, a certain movie by Neil Jordan may contribute to that, which is ironic because, you know, Collins dies over a month of the conflict, and Eamon de Valera, as we know, had absolutely no influence over the course of the Civil War. Like, de Valera's position is very interesting at the start of the Civil War. Like, I mean, de Valera, like Lynch in his own way, wasn't prepared for the outbreak of it. I mean, he, he was, maybe, arguably, with the packed election, but he's no political program in mind. He's no interest in leading any kind of political movement against the free. So at this time, he joins the volunteers as an ordinary soldier. But de Valera's views seem to shift with the loss of Republican territory, and he's very eager to seek peace, and he's very eager to develop some political program. Like, other IRA commanders, like Joe Connor of the Dublin Brigade, come to mind, and Ernie O'Malley as well, but not necessarily towards de Valera. Ernie O'Malley writes to Lynch and says, you know, what's our national policy here? And Lynch, I think a bit condescendingly says the O'Malley says, look, our policy is to defend the existing republic. Like Lynch has no interest in politics. Like he's no interest in Lee Mellows, notes from Mount Joy Jail. He's no he's no interest in anything the Communist Party proposes uh, from the Roddy Connolly's direction. But with de Valera, he's no interest in giving de Valera any influence over IRA decision making. Or any suggestions. Now, he does eventually concede to the creation of what's called the Republican government in October 1922, which is agreed at this executive meeting. And I, I think one of the reasons for this is the vicious pastoral that's issued in September 1922, kind of disavowing Republicans and the actions of the anti-treaty IRA and so on, that de Valera is able to kind of bring pressure to bear to create some sort of political authority for Republicans, a kind of de jure and certainly not de facto government. But it's much too late. It's much too late to have any influence. But most crucially, it's subordinate to the IRA executive on Lynch's instructions. So the Republican government or the Republican political body under de Valera has no influence at all, like even when it's formed because of Liam Lynch's attitude to politics and his disinterest in giving de Valera any kind of influence over decision-making over the course of the conflict. So from the very beginning of the Civil War, his relationship with de Valera is a very troubled one. There's some very telling, sometimes quite scathing and increasingly embittered exchanges between them all the way up until Lynch's death. I think you've know my take on Liam Lynch and his ideas during the Civil War, which is that Lynch takes the attitude that if they continue for long enough, they'll knock the foundations away from the free state, they won't allow it to function, and the free state will have to negotiate. And for this reason, in Liam Lynch's mind, it makes sense that if they carry on long enough, no matter how bad it's going at the moment, they will eventually win. Do you think this was a reasonable strategy or was, as some people have suggested, Liam Lynch delusional in some way? I think it definitely shows a bit of a nuance to his military thinking. I mean, the idea of Lynch that Rose presented is that he was overly positive and he was like, oh, we're going to win. We're going to win, you know. And this is the kind of thing I'm saying that like like his exchanges with de Valera are absolutely fascinating because he does mention this in other places, John, as you know, and I, I'd argue you probably know better than me with regards to some of the material uh, with regards to Liam Lynch during the Civil War. 
but like he writes two very lengthy columns to De Valera in December 1922 where he expands on this idea because basically what De Valera is saying to Lynch he says we're not going to win a conventional military victory here and Lynch agrees with him which is quite shocking Lynch is saying to De Valera who again he, he doesn't he doesn't really want to kind of have any influence that he, he knows they're not going to win but he wants to bring the free state infrastructure the, the, the political and military infrastructure to the point of the collapse to perhaps renegotiate the treaty maybe have a renewed war against Britain bring the other side back so to speak and this is even after executions begin that he's saying this and you do see some degree of success in what he's proposing you know you see the destruction of trains and so on but it's never applied widely and certainly not like a widely held belief amongst you know other officers and so on I mean you highlighted a comment to me a long time ago where one officer says I, now I think it's Tomas Toomey says it because it sounded like adjutant chief of staff to reply but essentially what it is is that like I, I think it's Tom Carlin I think he says it but he says like you know well that's a ridiculous strategy because like if we like you know, bring their infrastructure to collapse. They're just going to get more finance and other resources from Britain, who wants the free state to win. So, yes, it's you can criticize the strategy. You can absolutely see it was not widely applied. But the important thing to note, it is a strategy. I mean, when people talk about Lynch being very positive and so on, this is in his formal comms to a lot of his officers. When you look at the limited personal correspondence we have of Lynch's during the Civil War, his heart isn't in this fight. You know, like it's not the glorious war against the British, just, you know, quote unquote there. Like he writes to his brother Tom in September 1922. He goes, the disaster of this war is sinking to my very bones. How could our dreams have been so blighted? He writes to his mother, his mother in December 1922, he says to her, would be to God that English hounds had tracked me down rather than old comrades who were false to their allegiance. And he says to his mother, there's no prospect of victory anytime soon. He would have been very close to his mother and particularly his brother Tom, as I mentioned previously. So his heart isn't in this. And I think his kind of positive comms, you know, or his remarks are just to kind of bolster the morale of the troops. Like, like John, as you know, he's very critical in a lot of those comms. He's very, like, like even like 22nd of August, 1922, Michael Collins is killed. Liam Deasy writes a report to him. Liam Deasy's deputy chief of staff at this point, head of the first certain division. And Lynch is very complimentary of the action that killed Collins. You know, he knows it's a loss to the free state side, but then he criticizes Deasy. Well, why didn't you lay mines? Like, that would have been more effective. It might have killed more people. And you do see this, like, again and again in comms that he said, well, that was good, but you could have done this a bit better. Like, you know. He's a terribly hard boss, actually. Yeah, he's always commenting on micro aspects of ambushes and stuff and what people did wrong. Yeah, which which is kind of you can say like, hey, look, it's easier for you to say you weren't there. Like, you know, you, you do see John. You, you see this as like I think it's just brilliant. I like, and I, I do hope someday some of the UCD material becomes more widely available because it's just you really just get a sense of the character of Lynch and others in this. Because I think I think the advantage we have at Lynch and sometimes which can be quite challenging as his biographer is that he he writes very lengthy comms. Like you nearly kind of gone. I wish it showed up because this stuff is great and I can't put it all in. Like like he's coming to the political situation. Situation. He's making like throwaway remarks about other people. Like it, it's brilliant, and it kind of gives a great sense of who he is and what he's thinking at that particular moment in time. But yeah, like like I think there's just more to his thinking, more to his approach during the Civil War than popular memory would suggest. Now you can absolutely criticize it, and you can absolutely say it didn't really work for the most part. I mean, the only successful thing he, he does as chief of staff, in my view, and we've already mentioned this, is the return to guerrilla tactics. I mean, the seizures of 
Dundalk, like Ken Mary, Kerry, which lasts for several months, Balana in Mayo, which is, I think it's captured before the meeting of the third doll. I mean, these are high profile actions. I mean, free state military and political sources admit that by the end of 1922, guerrilla tactics are working. You know, they're localized, they're isolated in particular areas, but they are working. They are having an effect. They may be not the complete effect that Lynch is hoping for, but, you know, the free state government's worried, which is kind of one of the reasons, of course, the executions begin. Well, Jared, you mentioned earlier there about the discouragement that Lynch sometimes expresses in his comms. What is the effect on Lynch's morale of the executions and then the, the brutal reprisals that take place later on? He's completely unprepared for the executions. Now, the legislation, as we know, passed in September 1922. It's discussed at the executive meeting. It's very clear when you look at the minutes, it's not discussed at length. Ernie O'Malley even says this in the Singing Flame memoir as well. They didn't discuss it at length. Lynch writes to De Valera on the 17th of September, 1922. He says, I don't see the what's going to happen to Erskine Childers is going to be extreme. Like, as in, he's, he doesn't picture Erskine Childers then in custody to be executed. Of course, then he is executed on the 24th of November. And the same day Lynch wrote the calm. Four young Dublin anti-treaty IRA officers are executed in command of jail. Now, it's clear when you read the comment that Lynch is not aware of this as he's writing it to Devon. That was obviously, if I recall, it was publicly announced later in the day after it happened. He's shocked. He's distressed. This is the descriptions that we have of him at the time. He issues a series of orders. One is to execute all TDs who voted for what he termed the murder bill. That results in the assassination of Sean Hales. Court commandant like Lynch, but a pro treaty TD. Ironically, he didn't actually vote on the legislation. He wasn't present at the time. So he's actually not on the list of TDs to be executed. And Lynch says to others in other communications that, like Padre Mali, the deputy speaker of the Dáil, was actually the planned target. And Lynch orders reprisals on the homes of pro treaty senators and supporters and so on. Of course, on the 8th of December 1922, you know, the four members of the anti treaty IRA executive are executed in a reprisal in response to the, the um, assassination of Hales. And Mulcahy cites Lynch's threat against members of the Dáil as the reason first necessity and then there's a very tragic occurrence that i think gets very overlooked on the 10th of december 1922 the home of the pro treaty treaty sean mcgarry is burnt down in fairview and his seven-year-old son emmett is killed de Valera writes to Lynch, and he says i think the loss of little boys present prevented a rise of sympathy towards us lynch was obviously i think more sick of de Valera than kind of you know, I, then completely unfeeling, but he says, look, the McGarry case is very unfortunate, but that's the fortunes of war, which is very cold, like very callous. I mean, you know, a seven-year-old boy doesn't ask to die for Ireland, certainly an enormously tragic event, and it is a very bitter conflict already. And we're back again to this side of Lynch's character. Like, most of the time, he's not a ruthless leader. He's quite hesitant at some points. But there are times, like in the War of Independence we discussed before, and now, in this point in the Civil War, where he's extremely ruthless, you know, and kind of vindictive, uh, you know, it seems to be a contradiction in this character. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what I go so far as say vindictive, but I would certainly agree that definitely hardened, very ruthless, certainly callous about application of violence. I mean, you know, he's set into five or six years active. At the, you know, he's a hardened guerrilla commander at this point. He's very embittered by the course of the conflict and what he's involved in and so on. So the fact that like this is the route he's going down is not very surprising. Like I would agree with the perception of other historians, like Michael Hopkins talks about this, that and John Reagan actually talks about this quite vividly in the counter-revolution, that this sort of widespread 
kind of killing of TDs and pro-treaty senators and supporters never really happens. I mean, there's the burning down of several big houses or many big houses, as you know, John, at the time. But the ruthlessness of these orders doesn't really come to... We don't see their full effects. I mean, this comes that Lynch is writing in early 1923, giving out to commandants that, look, you're not reading my orders. Like, why are these not being carried out? He's he's annoyed. Like, I mean, he, by early 1923, like, the conflict on the part of the anti-treaty IRA is pettering out. I mean, a number of developments happen here that, you know, we'd be ages discussing. But, like, one is that Liam DC, his deputy chief of staff, is captured in February 1923. And DC issues from captivity a plea for Republicans such as Lynch to surrender, to end the war. Prisoners in Limerick and other jails are signing these forms of undertaking and asking the IRA leadership to surrender. Tom Barry, who escaped from Gormiston Camp in September 1922, he becomes Lynch's kind of main guerrilla commandant in the field and by early 1923 Barry is talking to Father Duggan who's a sympathetic Republican priest about opening peace negotiations with the Free State and he's trying to bring Lynch on side so you have a hardened guerrilla like Tom Barry seeing the big picture and thinking we're not going to win this and like Lynch is under this particular pressure and it's this reason that following you know arriving there in November 1922 by February 1923 he's left his GHQ in Dublin and he's moving down south to the old First Sutton Division area to meeting the First Sutton Division they want Lynch to have an executive meeting to open peace negotiations with the Free State and Lynch kind of convinces them to stay fighting but Lynch acquiesces to the meeting a meeting of the IRA executive in late March 1923 because he knows he has to bring these diverging viewpoints together but Unlike others who want to end the conflict and maybe seek peace, Lynch has other plans in mind. Well, Cherry, can you talk about those other plans? Yeah, so as I said, the, probably the most successful thing that Lynch did during the Civil War was return to guerrilla tactics, but he had a couple of other strategies in mind. Now, a number of them peter out, they don't really go anywhere. But there's two of note. Now, one in particular is the acquisition of heavy artillery. And for this, he sent Sean Moylan, one of his top commandants in Cork to America and then to Germany to try and acquire heavy artillery, you know, the big 18-pounder field guns that he felt that the IRA just had a few pieces of them that they could defeat the Free State, you know, really kind of make an impact on the National Army and change the course of the war. Like, this is what Lynch is looking for at this point. He's not looking to open peace negotiations and come to a settlement. He wants to change the nature of the fighting. Return to that idea that John, we had already discussed about bringing the Free State to the point of collapse, both the political and the military uh, institutions, to bring to bring a defeat. And he wants to try and set up a new Republican base in the West, probably very similar to what he briefly had at the start of the Civil War in the Southwest, the so-called, uh, I hate calling it the Monster Republic, it wasn't. But this base for Republicans, like the territory of their own, this is what he's thinking when he comes to the executive meeting. So the executive meeting takes place from the 23rd to the 26th of March in rural Waterford, in around the Nara Valley in two different locations. And when you read the minutes of that meeting, which are only bizarrely in the Devil Era papers, they're missing actually in the O'Malley and Toomey papers in the UCD. But when you look at the minutes of that meeting, others like Frank Aiken are talking about peace negotiations. Tom Barry performs a motion about not continuing the war. Lynch is the majority vote of one that advocates for the war to continue. But when you look at the minutes, it's very clear that Lynch's discussion of Moylan's efforts to get this heavy artillery is what kind of turns the conversation a bit more his direction to continue fighting, to find some way to, you know, succeed against the Free State. You know, in the middle of all this, we have a major National Army sweep to the area. The National Army have intelligence. They know that Liam Lynch and others such as Eamon de Valera are in the area at this meeting. Now, notably, de Valera does not have a vote at this meeting. 
on Lynch's instructions. There's a major National Army sweep happening at this time, and Lynch agrees for the executive to reconvene and have another meeting on the 10th of April in Ary Glen in northeast Cork. And to me, that's very fascinating because I think, again, it shows more to Lynch's thinking during the Civil War. Like Lynch admits to Kathleen Barry, his courier, close friend. This is in Mita Ryan's book, actually. And she told Florio Donahue this as well. But he saw three options open to him at this time. One was to carry on fighting, which is what he preferred. One was to surrender, didn't want that. And one was to dump arms. He also didn't want to do that. So he's aware these are the three options that are open to him at this point. And the fact that he's suggesting that the executive meet again in the midst of this massive National Army sweep shows that he recognized the importance of the situation to have them all kind of on the same side, so to speak. So essentially, the plan is to meet again and have the same conversation because the vote was so close to continue the war. That's Lynch's thinking up until his last days and his last hours before he shot to get to this meeting, to bring them all on side and let's continue the war and hopefully carry the day at some point. Because the problem with Lynch overall, I find during the Civil War, he's thinking like a local guerrilla commander. He's still thinking of the Cork number two commander where you have an ambush here and there, long stretches of nothing happening and you're planning. Like he's not thinking of the national picture. He's not thinking of the political and military picture as a commander in chief should, you know, we said he doesn't come from a professional army. You know, they're a volunteer, hardened guerrilla army at this point. They're not a professional fighting force. That's one reason that contributes to his, you know, lack of thinking for the national picture at this point. I mean, he's bothered that they're not winning, but it wouldn't have bothered him that, you know, eventually, surely they'll succeed. Surely they'll get to a point where, you know, like you had the truce in July 1921, which is a very difficult time for the IRA too when that happened. You know, something like that similar might occur. Like, this is what he's thinking. Find some means to carry the fight and get to some point where we have if we have negotiation, let's have something we can bring to the table here. Like, let's, you know, have an advantage, so to speak. That's what he's thinking in his final hours before he shot. Well, Jerry, could you tell us about Lynch's final hours and how he actually does die? On the 9th of April, 1923, he writes to Pam Murray, the OC of the IRA of Britain. And Murray had been under great pressure in his command area. Britain was never, like, as in, you know, England and so on, it was never really a viable area for the IRA to carry out many activities. And Certainly the Civil War was probably far worse than the War of Independence. Pat Murray had offered Lynch's resignation. And Lynch writes to Murray and he says, if we stand united, the victory is certain. I always think that's very interesting. That's probably, if not his final column, one of his final final ones anyway. Like he's still talking, possibly trying to raise the morale, so to speak. He's in a safe house at the base of the Knockmill Down Mountains. In the early hours, they get an alert that there's a National Army sweep. They go up the mountain, pursued by a National Army column, led by a lieutenant called Lawrence Clancy. Tipperary IRA veteran who had gone pro-treaty. Lynch is in a group that consists of others such as Frank Aiken and Bill Quirk, Sean Hyde, possibly Tom Barry, though I think there's a bit of a question mark over that, and Jack O'Mara, who is a local volunteer. There's a shooting between the column and Lynch's group for about 20 minutes, and there's a clearing in the area, and they run across an open field, and a quick-thinking National Army soldier fires the group, and a tall man is hit, Lynch, at the back, and falls over. Now, Lynch is said to have had, by some sources, a bad flu. He was particularly tall. He was straggling behind the group because he wasn't as fit as he had been during the War of Independence. Sean Hyde says to me, Ryan, he was pulling him along by the hand through the bushes and so on. And Lynch is carried for a distance by Aiken and the others, and he bans, he'd be let down. And they take his papers and so on. They take his papers and his gun, crucially, because if he's found his gun, he would have been liable to have been executed under the legislation. And he's found by Clancy and the National Army troops. He's mortally wounded in the abdomen, and that becomes very clear to Clancy very quickly that Lynch's wound is quite serious. 
they take him down with great difficulty down the mountain. They bring him to Walsh's pub in Newcastle Village. He's laid out on a couch there that's still there. And you can actually still visit the couch. They have a photo of it in the book before he's brought to Clonmel Hospital. Him and Clancy have a very interesting conversation that I recounted at length in the book where Clancy asks him, does he have any requests? And Lynch gives him a few personal items. And Lynch says, tell my people I want to be buried with Fitzgerald or Fermoy. Clancy goes, is that Mick Fitzgerald, the hunger striker? Because... Mick Fitzgerald, after he was imprisoned after the Moy Arms Raid, he went on remand. He was involved in the court jail hunger strike that Terence McSweeney was initially on. And he died after 67 days of hunger strike. And his death devastated Lynch, like because they were very close friends. And Lynch seemed to have looked up to Fitzgerald quite a bit. Lynch says to Clancy, he says, are you one of the old crowd? And the IRA, I mean. And Clancy goes, I was. I had two brothers who were killed. They were IRA too. And him and Lynch cry and they hold hands and Lynch goes, I'm glad when the old crowd got me. None of this should have ever happened. Poor Ireland, poor Ireland. And he's then taken away by military ambulance and he dies later that night in early evening, rather, on the 10th of April, 1923. And his funeral is a huge affair. Very intriguingly, De Valera asked that Lynch be buried in Glasnevin beside, as he describes it, a great lion like Colbrough. And Lynch's family acquiesced to Lynch's request to, well, not acquiesced, they they wanted to obey Lynch's fighting wishes to bury him in Kilcrumper with his close comrade Mick Fitzgerald, Kilcrumper Cemetery, just inside from where he's buried. Today in the Republican plot, and this was what begins the commemoration of Lynch, this unbowed, unconquerable Republican hero who never surrendered and in the views of his supporters and admirers never compromised. So, you know, Lynch died, like you said, in County Tipperary, and shortly afterwards, as many people will know, Frank Aiken gave the dump arms order and the civil war ended. But I want to finish on the afterlife of Liam Lynch. So, for example, in 2017, and the centenary of Eamon de Valera being elected in a by-election in Ennis, I happened to be in Ennis, and I saw old men with badges of Liam Lynch, you know. So what does Liam Lynch, the symbol, what does Liam Lynch, the Republican martyr figure, mean, as opposed to Liam Lynch, the real man? And do they line up at all, do you think? Well, just to begin on your second point very briefly, I mean, as you mentioned, John, like Frank Aiken becomes chief of staff and issues the dump arms order several weeks later, but he does so after he asked after alert to open peace negotiations with the Free State, which don't go anywhere. They were never going to go anywhere, particularly at that point. Like Lynch wrote a comp to De Valera in February 23 that I quote in the book where he says, well, maybe at some point I'll need you to open peace negotiations with the Free State, but now is not the time. I think that's just him trying to keep De Valera happy, to be honest, but it does show like I pointed out before his death, he was aware of the options that would become available to him if the conflict became turned to certain points where he had to make a choice there. I mean, Lynch died at a time before he made that choice. Frank Aiken did. Now, maybe he wouldn't have made it as quickly, particularly if the heavy artillery never arrived, which it never did, despite John Moylan's efforts. You know, what would Lynch have done without his military plans come to nothing in that regard, particularly with guerrilla fighting haven't petered out. Liam Lynch, the icon, I think is, is is fascinating in itself. I mean, as I said, like this phrase, we've declared for a republic and we will not live under any other law, which sometimes is really overemphasized. You know, like it was his rallying cry during the Civil War. It was nothing of the sort. It was a private remark. And it was still a very important remark that, that he mentions about the time the letter. But it's the idea that like Liam Lynch never surrendered. He never compromised on the republican ideal. As I said, when he died... He was unconquerable. He was unbowed to the pressure from others to open for peace or surrender and so on. He becomes a very important component of a Republican tradition that has endured a century later. I think very unique for a figure of this period. I have seen it with no other major figure of the period. He's commemorated in several different places at different times of year. He's commemorated at 
his birthplace outside Anglesborough at a monument there every November around the time of his birthday. He's commemorated in April in Newcastle Village around the time of his death. He's commemorated every July at the very impressive Memorial Tower in the Knockmiddown Mountains, which is built on the spot where he was shot on the 10th of April, 1923. And he's also commemorated in Fermoy at his gravesite every September around the anniversary of the Fermoy Arms Raid. That was a date chosen by his comrades. They began that commemoration in the 50s. Now, that commemoration is normally associated with Fianna Fáil. Now, there's relatives of Liam Lynch, who I'm sure are listening, who will go mad if I call it the Fianna Fáil commemoration. It's not. It's a Liam Lynch commemoration that happens to be chaired by often a local Fianna Fáil politician. But it's very interesting that like, he's a component of a Fianna Fáil political tradition in terms of commemoration. Sinn Féin, of course, and, you know, non-aligned Republicans, as I call them, sometimes referred to as distance or, you know, anti-Good Friday Agreement Republicans and so on, however you want to term them. So, yeah, like he's very widely commemorated. Now, I mean, I'm always struck when people, admirers and relatives say, oh, he's forgotten, he's forgotten. He's never been forgotten. His commemorations, like you can see, particularly through like 30s, 40s, 50s, are very well attended, hugely attended affairs, particularly, you know, up on the mountain and in Fermoy and so on. I think what they mean by that, that he's widely forgotten, he's kind of faded from popular memory. I mean, we talked about how the Civil War is distilled down between a kind of a De Valera versus Collins epic battle so to speak like you know Lynch doesn't come into that conversation though he's very briefly mentioned in Neil Jordan's film though he doesn't appear in it and I think that kind of commemoration of Lynch will endure far beyond his centenary like you know his importance as a Republican symbol as a a figure of high idealism and bravery and you know his considerable military prestige that he has during the war of independence now his military record during the civil war is quite mixed and that's probably down a lot to the tenor of the conflict that he played a major part in that like but you know, the fact he was very central to the operations he planned during the War of Independence, like in Fermoy and Mallow and the kidnap of General Lucas, like this helps add to his fame and the admiration amongst people who hold him up as this major Republican symbol in commemoration. I think that'll endure far beyond the centenary this year, to be honest. With my book, what I hope to achieve is a more human betrayal of the man behind this icon. You know, understand him a bit more, his positives, and he did have them, and he had his flaws too, and it's important to note them. And hopefully, you know, contribute to the conversation as to understanding him a bit better. And I, I really do hope it encourages others to look at him and aspects of his life more because, you know, we have 20 odd biographies on Michael Collins and they don't all agree with each other. I don't agree with Mita Ryan and Fari O'Donoghue's perspectives, different perspectives on Lynch. And I'm sure those won't agree with me, but I'm very delighted to be able to kind of enlighten the understanding of Liam Lynch and kind of bring him out from the kind of dark a bit more and, you know, into people's thinking when we think of this period and think of a major figure like that well jerry thank you very much for coming on this evening and that was a fascinating talk about general liam lynch for everyone that's listening we would really really encourage you to get your hands on a copy of jerry's book it's liam lynch to declare a republic by jared shannon and it's available from Merriam press and i'm sure you'll get it in all good bookshops and online at the moment so you can find this episode and all our previous episodes to show on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. And also, please check out our friends at radio.ie. They have all your radio archiving solutions. 
John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting the show, there is a link in the show notes. Thank you, and we really do appreciate that. So until next time, on behalf of myself and my co-presenter, John Dorney, we were very grateful to have Cherry Shannon on today, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.